And welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I can't wait to introduce you to our guest who ruins superhero physics. <laughs> uh, today we are talking about Minute 80, which begins with Steve giving some uniform ideas to Howard and ends with Steve's first catch of the shield boomerang. Or is it the boomerang shield? Whatever it is. That's where we are. <laughs> As uh, Pete pointed out, uh, Jason Dittmer is back on the show, author of Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero. Um, let's dig into this minute. Bring in that big think? vibranium energy. Oh, yeah. Big vibranium <laughs> energy. <laughs> Which is to say not much energy at all. Not much energy. It's totally <laughs> absorbent. Yeah, right. I, uh, I, I dampen the energy in any room I go to. <laughs> <laughs> the human vibranium. Is that what? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, well, this minute starts, uh, you know, Peggy has just walked out and we get the reaction shot of Stephen Howard watching her leave. Um, This is are they looking at her? Are they drawn to her because like, wow, powerful woman in the 40s? Or is it because she just pulled out a gun? Is it shock that she did something like this? Like, what is what is this reaction that they both have? Any sense as to what we're meant to read here? Oh, look, a powerful woman. We don't know what to do with that. I mean, she did just try to shoot one of them. I mean, right. it, it seems, you know, I think it's a combination, right? She, she's powerful enough to to do that and walk out of the room and act as if nothing kind of unusual has happened. But it does have them as kind of schoolboy, you know, kind of not quite lusting, but kind of uh, absolutely enraptured by this display that they have just seen. There is that sense like, uh, wow, she is so much hotter now. Like, or yeah, wow, she's a crazy, you know, powerful woman. Like it, there's, there are all of these things going on here with the way it plays. And it does feel very tropey. As we've said, this whole part feels so tropey, the way that they're handling the relationships in the film. Um, and just to point out, I do feel we are missing a reaction shot of young Q scribbling down in his notebook here. Like, that's exactly right. That's how you do it. That's what, that's what we need to be doing in this lab. Actually do some tests on people. <laughs> I'm so set on that now. All right. And then this is a, what do you, how do you think that it's, it's, it works as far as how uh, Joe Johnston decided to direct this moment about the uniform between the two of them? They maintain their stare at Peggy as she's walking away as Steve pulls out the piece of paper and hands it to Howard who, and then they have their little exchange there. Does that play like, do you like the way that he directed this? I mean, it's very much designed. They're not looking at each other. It it feels very designed. Does it work for you? I mean, I guess it works. You know, like if we accept the, the idea of her as a kind of brassy 1940s Lois Lane kind of character, you know, like setting that bit aside, the bit about them not looking at each other, but handing the note over. I think it shows the kind of development of a camaraderie. You know, if before they were slightly romantic rivals or at least set up as potential romantic rivals for her attention, you know, now the gap is closed between them and, you know, uh, they're both in awe of her and but working together absolutely fine. You know, I think it's a follow on from the fondue discussion earlier. There's a kind of on the same team kind of feeling about them. The fact that they use this particular moment watching her walk away to build that camaraderie feels a little broy to me. Um, and I don't know if we were I mean, when this movie came out, if it felt like 
this would be quite as dated as it feels a, a cultural statement. Um, I I don't I don't necessarily hate it. It doesn't like glorify the broiness of it. It doesn't do a reverse shot watching her in reverse walk away into another office. It it doesn't like really lean in on it, but it does feel a little bit. Like as some of the uh, the rest of the exchanges in this, we've talked about the kiss this week, the Natalie Dormer bit. It it, it can start to feel a little bit broy that, and, and I, I don't necessarily know that that's out of character for the MCU entirely, but it feels a little dated to me right now. I suppose they can get away with it being a film that takes place in the forties, yeah. like. To that end, they can say, well, yeah, it was the period. Right. Um, but yeah, it does play that way. I do think that if anything, though, that I take away from this is at least it shows that Joe Johnston was trying to find a way to direct a scene where it wasn't just a shot of Steve and then a shot of, of Howard um, or even just a, a you know shot reverse shot of the two of them in a conversation. But he found a way, you know what, let's do something where they're both just watching her and we can just have them deliver that. So to that end, I mean, the direction is fun. I thought he was doing something interesting there. Yeah. It's nothing groundbreaking, but yeah. it doesn't feel sexual at all, you know, and I think that's no. maybe a key, no, a key yeah. thing. It's not like, the, like you said, you could imagine a version where they're watching her walk out the room and a kind of subtext is, you know, that they're they're viewing her from behind. But like, yeah. even though they are literally viewing her from behind, it you know, their eyes are up. It looks very much like they're just in shock rather than, you know, that they're being lusty. I guess we're just sort of trained, right, that these sorts of of two guys watching a woman walk away is supposed to be yeah. hypersexualized in film. And so it is it, like I note the setup and that the payoff isn't, as you say, that sort of hypersexualized payoff is is that's that's good. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I wonder if this is something that where it's about breaking across the two minutes, you know, so it's like if you view the scene directly, you see she's just unloaded the gun at Steve. It's, you know, it's yes. meant to be shocking. It's meant to be, you know, yeah, yeah. I think viewed in context, it's uh, maybe a little less rowy, as you say. But I, I see your I take your point. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think the the the, the moment that close most closely fit what you were just kind of describing, Pete, is probably back uh, in the in the whip and fiddle when Peggy, you know, when she first comes in with the red dress and you actually, as she looks out to the group of guys in the bar singing, Steve does have a moment where he kind of like looks down and kind of uh, like checks her out from top to bottom. Yeah. So there is that moment there. But this, yeah, they they shoot this purposefully not that way. It is very much about kind of just the reaction to what she just did and this, you know, this, uh, you know, um, deciding to unload a weapon in this uh, lab, which probably isn't something that they would recommend, right. even though Howard just blew the back of the room up. So, I mean, <laughs> right, right. clearly things are happening here. Um, any last final thoughts on what we have here in the lab, or should we jump into our montage? We need a montage. Montage, montage, montage. <laughs> That's right. Cue the music. It is time for a montage. We uh, finally get... The full reveal of the official Captain America that we're going to have for the rest of the film here. We started it in minute 79 talking about it, but this is where we finally get to see all of the pieces come in place. He got this. He said he picked the shield. He passed his notes over about the uniform, and now we get to see it. It starts off with the motorcycle. Uh, that's certainly something that comes into play. We um, saw Captain America on his motorcycle back in the TV movie. And that's certainly would you say that that the motorcycle was pretty prevalent in the comics? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that's his kind of mode of travel of, of choice. 
Um, and he does it in World War II, and then he does it um, various points. Like in the, in the Watergate scandal, he actually gives up being Captain America and uh, goes on a road trip on a motorcycle to kind of re-encounter America and decide if he still feels comfortable with it and so on. So it's, it's a pretty well-worn you know, even if you go to buy the toys about Captain America, I have a nine-year-old. So, you know, if you go to the toy store, you know, he's he's not driving a Corvette or something. He's or flying a helicopter. He's he's <laughs> driving a motorcycle, sure, or a coupe, as we'll see yeah. later. <laughs> no, that's very true. I I always associate his character with a motorcycle. It just seems to be like you know what Captain America comes with, and this is that moment where we saw we saw the motorcycle also in that in the lab. And now he's getting it ready. It's got a shotgun holster in the front. He loads it with a gun and he puts uh, his handgun in his holster, holster on his hip, puts his shield on the back. We now see it's fully painted already as scorch marks. So I guess it's it's a, an interesting design of the of the montage to kick us off with. We're introducing the character, but he's already been using all of this in, in battle. It's like we're not even seeing him before the world has like he's already been out there fighting. Now we're going to introduce you to him with, you know, scorch marks and everything on his shield. And then we're going to show him as we go into the montage. Okay, Captain America, the look that we get in the movie. Jason, you've read a lot of Captain America comics. How do you feel they translated the look from the comics to this particular look? I know we had the theater look, which was kind of more in line with the comics, but how does that transition play uh, for what we get here? I mean, I think it's pretty great. I mean, to be honest with you, of all the Captain America, you, you know, costumes from the entire adventure cycle i kind of think this is my favorite it's both ridiculous as captain america's costume is i mean he has in the comics he has these like pirate boots he has his little wings on his head you know so he looks like mercury you know the letter a on his forehead i always say just in case you forget what country he's fighting for um which of course would be easy to do given the red white and blue and the stars and stripes you know you just got to stamp a letter on his head so given the patent ridiculousness of it um, I think it's actually a really great, you know, it looks utilitarian. It looks like it gives him some protection. It also stands him out from the crowd. <laughs> One of the things I find fascinating about Captain America as a character is that we all talk about him having a uniform, right? Which is amazing. You, know, you don't talk about Thor having a uniform or Iron Man getting into his uniform or Spider-Man getting into his uniform, right? Superheroes have costumes or suits or outfits or something like that right but for some reason captain america gets gets put in a uniform right it's part of his kind of military connection but of course a uniform is literally meant to make one person look like every other person that's the point you know is to create a a big group where no individual stands out um except the officer or something like that and you know but here he is clearly the kind of uso uh costume so to speak has been transmogrified into some sort of military outfit that both looks functional but still makes him stand out which obviously for the purposes of a movie a highly visual medium you need the superhero to stand out from everybody else so um i love it actually i think it's great the idea of like his 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 uh, you know mask and everything being a helmet you know i thought that really worked um i mean yeah worked you know Kind of ridiculous movie way but <laughs> i'm not I'm not going to go out and make right. one of these for myself but where to work right know. right right it's such a relief this this you know uniform because 
you know, what we've everything that we've seen so far and all the other Captain America movies leading up to this one, everything so vibrant and, you know, it, it just sort of pajama ish. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just everything so colorful that it is actually sort of a relief just to see something that's muted, dirty, like the whites are, are dirty and kind of gross, like everything feels used and lived in. And uh, so even though he does stand out from the rest of the Howling Commandos, he doesn't stand out in a way that they don't each stand out from each other. Right. They are all wearing something that's kind of unique uh, in in their little group together, particularly in the hero moment we get at second, you know, 20 through 22. Like it, it just feels like um, they are all unique individuals in this organism yeah. that is their their little soldiery, uh, which I think is really cool. I think it's really cool. And notably, it's a multicultural group, right? I mean, when you talk about the difference yeah. within the group, right? Um, you know, not entirely anachronistic, but, you know, not uh, not not anachronistic either. <laughs> you know, <that> it's, <laughs> every single person represents a different ethnic group and so on. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple valuable reasons for them to include the Howling Commandos. Obviously, they each because of the fact that they're each kind of um identified by something that really makes them stand out it makes us it makes it that much easier for us to kind of connect with them as characters as yeah. opposed to just having him you know with you know a couple dozen troops yeah. who really would just be red shirts at that point this way we are very easy to kind of click with oh, okay that's the guy in the bowler hat that's the guy with the with the beret like they each have their own little stamp that it makes it so much easier and of course then kind of their their character quirks that also go along uh with that and so that really helps in a in moments like this but also i think there is that element of the howling commandos representing kind of the the concept of the american melting pot and uh we get this this kind of multicultural group that gives us this you know steve is all about the ideals of what america should be not necessarily like the uh, jingoistic American. And to that end, working with this troop here in the war, I think, um, I don't know, it, it seems like an important message to be putting in, in the film. Absolutely. Are, did you did you read many of the Howling Commandos comics? Um, I didn't read their comics specifically, but they appear in, um, they don't appear in World War II Captain America comics, but they do appear beginning in the 60s, the the Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos was kind of launched as a retro war comic, and they were kind of retroactively put into Captain America. And then they do start appearing in Captain America stories um, in the 1960s. I mean, I really enjoy them in the film here. I haven't, I've, I've only read them in passing, just like a comic here or there. And they seem like fun characters to follow, but I was never drawn as much to just kind of the militaristic sorts of comics. I wanted a little more flash and and uh you know magic and everything i mean it's an entire it's a fusion isn't it because I mean, war comics was a whole genre unto itself very popular in the kind of 1940s 1950s and even into the 1960s and there was a small revival in the in the 80s there were like comics called like the nam and stuff like that that were kind of look backward looking towards um towards war but um you know it, i would say it's kind of not popular anymore i would think but um you end up with, but so the idea of kind of fusing a war comic and kind of into the Marvel universe was itself a kind of mashup. And I mean, you know, we're not going to likely see any return of these characters unless they decide to jump back into another st uh, a story in a, kind of the period where we would have these particular characters. But there's nothing imbued with these characters that makes them like super 
sorts of characters that would find a way to reappear in the modern era. So if we ever see these characters come back, it would be it would have to be like in a, a one shot or in a TV series or something. Yeah. I think it is a real testament to the movie, though, to your point about not about the Howling Commandos having not appeared in the World War II, just how hand to glove the the whole fit is of all of these characters in this movie. There's nothing that feels sort of jarringly shoehorned in to a Captain America story. It all just feels very natural to 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 bring all these elements together. I think it's a real uh, I, I think that's a real highlight of the film to give us these characters. And this is the moment. I mean, we saw Steve kind of building his team. We saw him asking all of these uh, these soldiers to join him to return to fighting Hydra. And, uh, and here they are. Now we finally get to see it. On the Marvel Wiki, uh, it specifically calls out three locations that they attack Hydra uh, factories. The first is France in December 1943, then Belgium, January 1944, and then Czechoslovakia, February 1944. This montage actually continues until we get the attack on the train, which happens uh, February 1st, 1945. So, I mean, we're from the time that, you know, they I mean, the story up to this point, like all the stuff that we had just been watching was November 5th, 1943. So from November 5th, 1943 to uh, February 45, that really encompasses the entire montage. So we get a lot of time. And actually, there are a ton of comics and additional stories that they've told um, of this period in time when um, uh, Captain America and the Howling Commandos are attacking various Hydra bases and uh, working to stop Red Skull. Um, interestingly, um, we don't see Poland or Greece, uh, but those two are included in the script, which I thought was interesting. And the way that it's actually scripted, they actually... They have broken up um, all of the different action in the montage. When they burst through the doors, that's in France. When um, Red Skull drives up after the attack, that's in Belgium. When um, this will be for another minute, but Bucky is on sniper duty and he saves Pete, that's in Poland. And then Czechoslovakia, that's where he bursts out of the uh, factory windows on his motorcycle and then uh, blows the whole place up so it's uh, the way that they end up shooting it and scripting it ends up of course being edited in a way where it's just like none of the places are identified we just basically see them bursting into a place attacking it blowing it up and steve escaping on the motorcycle Um, but it's an incredibly fun sequence um what do you what do you two think of kind of like just watching these Uh, This group kind of bursting in and destroying stuff and, I mean, getting a sense of them in action. I mean, it's great fun. I think I I just want to call out one sequence that I think is is worth noting. Speaking of tropes, as we have been doing this week, that, you know, this is this is just how counterculture Marvel is in terms of their presentation of effects. We actually have a cool guys don't look at explosion sequence where Steve actually does turn around and look at the explosion behind him before riding away in the motorcycle. And I think that's really important because they're really pushing the boundaries, Marvel is, pushing boundaries of of explosions and cool guys, which I think is fun. I mean, it, it, is Captain America really a cool guy, though? I mean, that's kind of, that's, uh, yeah, that's, you know, he would be I the kind of guy who wants saying. to make sure it blew up right. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're right. He's just thorough. Yeah. That's yeah. what he is. He's that's what we're, we've is, learned something. Yeah, yeah fastidious. <laughs> Puny Steve is yeah. not a cool yeah. guy. Yeah. And he's still the guy looking back at that explosion. Can we talk about the car? Well, be- before we get to that, I, I before we get outside to that, I do want to jump back inside because we have something that is very modern 
in filmmaking. Uh, and Jason, I don't know if you caught this, but we have a moment inside the factory where um, Steve is taking down some Hydra troops with his shield. He hits uh, a couple of them with the shield. And the second one he hits, we get a uh, some speed ramping done yeah. with the camera where um, after he hits the guy, all of a sudden everything goes into slow motion as the guy flips through the air slowly and Steve kind of stands there in a super cool action hero pose. It, I, I know it's a very small flash that we have of that particular moment, but, uh, and and Pete, this might, might be more a question for you specifically with like camera tech and everything. Does it feel out of place in a film designed so largely by Joe Johnston to feel like a 1940s film. This is this is the I think the feigiest of Johnston moments, right? Like this is the moment that makes it feel like okay, we're we get that you're doing your Joe Johnston rocketeer thing, but what really we need to have happen is we need a superhero at the end of this movie and we need more hero moments. And this montage is all hero moments. You're you're absolutely right. It's poses, it's motorcycle, it's I mean, just even the the shot before where they're coming into the barn, right? The camera pulls back and tilts way down as as Captain America is over top of it. And then we get this hero twist moment where he's he's being speed ramped. So it feels to me like we're ushering in a new style and tone of filmmaking uh, in just the way they're editing this thing um, in this montage that we have not seen in minutes one through 79. This is the kind of still in the early days of the kind of 3D um, film technology stuff, right? So like that, oh, that yeah, bit where he sure. throws the shield. Was that in this minute? I'm, I apologize no. if I'm breaking. Oh, just kidding. That didn't happen it's at a, all. It's at the, at the end of this minute. No, we is get it right at the, at the end, end of, of it, this minute? Yeah, we, we get him throwing and catching. The Excellent. So uh, <laughs> thank heavens that you can edit this whole bit out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the bit about him throwing the shield directly at the camera, you know, that has, That's is what very anti, you know, it's not very retro, is it? But, you know, it's because they need to fit in the kind of signature 3D moment that, will help to move those tickets, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about. And that one we don't get in this minute. That, oh, that straight oh dang, at the camera. Well, just cut the whole thing. Yeah. Cut the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> just something to look forward to. I, I think there is a lot of that that, that we get in the film. And, and actually, to your point, I suppose you could call out the moment when Steve bursts through the windows out of the factory. Like, I mean, it's, it's very much toward camera. And that could be seen as, oh, this will be a great opportunity for the 3D. You know, Steve is bursting through the flames and he's coming right into your face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot. It's a lot. Where, where, and I mean, it starts with this moment. It's like, does that make you think of the TV movie, though? <laughs> so like, much. like, I, I so feel much. like, yeah, him coming off the helicopter, like this is yeah. that same sort of thing. This out of the van, blowing up the helicopter, the jet powered bike, and then, uh, you know, a, as an emotional sav sitting in his jean shorts and sketching. No, I think <laughs> this this minute, like it's it, it's it does that thing that Captain America does, I think, really uniquely. And I'm curious the the take on uh, the global audience and how it receives this sort of um, America pandering. The fact that this has sufficiently patriotized such violence and fire in the in the name of the American war effort um, that I don't uh, you know, I don't know how to look at as a non-American person. Right. Like, I'm curious how how is like you write books and talk about Captain America in a non-American place in a non-American university. What's the what's the reception? 
you know, it's interesting because I, I think especially when they were looking to do a big budget movie, probably a lot of these fears were really dominant, you know, because it's one thing to sell Captain America comics or, you know, and but, you know, I walk around London and, you know, I, I probably at least every day see one person who's got a Captain America shirt on and they can't all be tourists, you know? Um, I mean, I guess they could technically it's one, <laughs> but it's, 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 it happens in the winter. I'll put it that way. Um, so, you know, I think there's something, I mean, there's, there's both a kind of general globalization of the superhero itself that I think has happened, you know, uh, in a previous episode, we we're talking about the, the effort to make Captain Britain and so on. And I think probably the superhero genre has kind of, transcended its American origins. And at the same time, it keeps embedded within it some of these tropes and stuff that are, we might call Americanisms. And to some extent, other countries can buy into those, right? With the, the idea of with great power comes great responsibility is something that like a lot of countries can can grab a hold of and say, you know, and not even ones we agree with, right? Um, can grab a hold of and say, you know, well, of course we're powerful, therefore we should take more responsibility in the world. And that means us controlling more stuff and so on. So, you know, the kind of power mythology of superheroes, I think has, has, has blossomed and kind of localized in a range of places in different ways. So, you know, to some extent, people can laugh at Captain America. Lots. It's certainly probably not everyone's favorite superhero outside of America. He's not everyone's favorite superhero in America. In America, right? <laughs> um, but I think he he doesn't come across as thumping, tub thumping for America. He comes across as a kind of moral individual, and people might object to the kind of um, association of that specifically with America. At the same time, I think. People can get behind the idea of a kind of solid guy who does what he thinks is right um, and is kind of incorruptible and disciplined. You know, he's the opposite of the antihero. And a lot of people can get behind that, you know, and they can kind of ignore the American part of it, you know. And I think maybe that gets to the point about the Howling Commandos, right? That it's a kind of sure. team effort. You've, you've got Agent Carter. You've got, you know, um, Howard Stark. You've got Captain America, right? It's a team even if he's the centerpiece. Well, and you bring up with great power comes great responsibility. I think that, the, you know, the, the one that I think gets less play from this movie is I don't like bullies. I don't care where they come from. Like that is the yeah. that's the non-American necessarily like sort of trope that we're that this movie, you know, does. It just happens to do it with stars and stripes all over his uniform. And yeah. That's the thing that that I think can can be read as over the top. Yeah. But I think he he doesn't go on about America, does he? In no. his speeches, he almost never no. talks about it, right? Really, really does not. Just the colors no. mm -hmm. and the and the ideal. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's right. his perspective. The motorcycle that he's on is a 1942 Harley Davidson WLA Liberator, and of course, it has some custom editions. Hence, the reason it was in Stark's lab. Speaking of vehicles, uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, Schmidt's Coupe. Yes. Red Skull pulls up in Belgium, very upset that the place is on fire. Uh, this is the curse you, you're always one step ahead <laughs> sort of moment that we have. If it weren't for you lousy kids. In our montage here. Uh, what do you want to say about this Coupe? What do you think? Well, I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's like Vladimir Putin's dinner table as a car. You know, it's it goes on for a mile. You know, <laughs> he probably arrived at the factory, you know, five minutes before he his body got there. I mean, it's, um, you know, because the car is so long and so glorious and uh, it, it calls to mind my um, 
if one can have such a thing, my favorite cinematic reference to Hitler's car, uh, which was in Rat Race, if you if you ever saw that movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a deep yeah, dive. Sure. But John Lovitz, there's a, this incredible comedy scene, which I won't try to recount here because it will not be funny. Um, but it's, you know, Hitler's car, this kind of extended luxury ridiculous kind of gothic machine and and it looks like they've just taken that and run with it but it, it you know you just begs the question why is the car so long what's the point of that um could it actually turn a corner you know in a in a urban setting i don't <laughs> i don't know well that's that was my question because we we saw i mean earlier zola drove it out of the factory in austria uh, but we had seen uh, schmidt you know in it arriving in uh, Norway at the beginning of the film. And uh, I mean, now he's just like driving all over the place. And uh, I mean, how, how is it for a secret organization? I mean, we, this goes back to our whole thing with Hydra being secret in any capacity. It's like, he's the easiest person to spot. He's driving a car that is as big as a tank and he's, his head is red. <laughs> like, I feel like people might notice got this. Tinted windows, like, it's such a... You know, it's uh, <laughs> privacy is important. It's not it's not going to do any good if it's just the uh, the the um, front window because I don't see any. Yeah, that's else true. That's true. Car. That's right. I just I wonder about this car, like driving around in it. As cool as it is, yeah. I can't imagine him cruising through the streets in uh, you know other parts. And also, I mean, as we've talked about, he essentially has started war um, against Hitler as well, right? I mean, it's never specifically called out in the film, but when he kills. Mm-hmm. Um, the three SS officers uh, back at his base, that's essentially him cutting ties with the Nazis and saying, you know what, we're our own thing and we're going to fight everybody and take over the world. It's kind of a, a remarkable scene in which they, I mean, I know it's not in our minute, but, you know, where they're like, oh, he's worse than Hitler. Like, it's almost like a rehabilitation of Hitler. You know, it's like, well, you know, Red Skull is worse than Hitler. And it's like, do we need someone right. worse than Hitler? Couldn't he just be, <laughs> yeah. couldn't he just work for Hitler? Yeah. That seems pretty bad. Yeah. You know, we solved this <laughs> yeah. in the form of evildoers already. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, I do like just a, a just a quick note on our clip with Peggy Carter here. She is handed a flag on a long stick as they're taking out targets. And note that she is uh, still wearing her sort of practical outfit, but this time it is only slightly militarized. She has the little tie clip that is uh, clearly a some sort of uh, badge. It's the SSR. It's the SSR. Uh, it's, it's SSR flag, yeah. And so, um, but she's not wearing her full jacket and everything like everybody else in the scene. She's 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 getting some authority in the form of a pin uh, now. And also to point out, they are removing the flag. Apparently they just destroyed it. Again, none of this really makes sense, but it, 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 per the script. But if we're just guessing all of this is a montage designed just for us film viewers who haven't looked at the script, then basically the way that all of this played is they just broke into this base in uh, western Austria near Liechtenstein and destroyed this base. That's really kind of how it plays because mm-hmm. that's where the flag sits right on the map. And then we go to the woods. And then we go to the frozen woods. Uh, it, I mean, we're in the middle of the montage, and the montage is going to continue. This is a moment that very much feels like we've just taken a beat and stepped out of the montage just to have this scene here. Uh, this is Captain America and the Howling Commandos and uh, you know, probably another uh, dozen men or so walking through a foggy, wintry forest. And we get this moment where Captain America kind of has everybody hold and then he kind of pokes around, and I don't know, what is it that gives this Hydra Trooper away? Is it, does Cap see him? As we know, Cap's 
you know, senses all have been amped up because of the super soldier serum, but it's not ever clear. Like, is it his vision? Does he hear something? What is helping him to pin this Hydra trooper down? And, uh, and then you know, the shield boomerang. Uh, let's talk about first just Cap noticing the guy. What are we saying about Captain America by having him be able to pin this guy who's essentially invisible up in the treetop above everybody? He's a superhero. <laughs> he has super you, hearing and, and what, smelling. Yeah, well, what is it? Like, is is he smelling? <laughs> he really doesn't, though. I mean, Captain America doesn't have super senses. I thought in the comics, doesn't he like, didn't all of his senses get amped up? Like he can see and hear and, and everything a little bit. I mean, not like supernaturally. I mean, I think he's kind of like, you know, peak human condition, you know, but like, I don't think, you know, he's not like Daredevil or someone who can like hear extra well or something like that. I mean, I think, I think probably what they're trying to represent is this kind of attentiveness, you know, that he's, you know, it's not that he can hear or see better than everyone else, but that he's, just you know super yeah attentive yeah he's just it's all about his mind i think i mean if we're laughing but it's you know that's kind of the thing right with (laughs) captain america is that he's not um uh you know that that he's supposed to be a product of his own work even though he's a steroid freak right so in the 90s um they did a a story in the comics because of course by then steroids was like a real problem and and drug use was getting you know there was a, a whole kind of moral panic about um, mm-hmm. the stuff and clearly someone had said how do you have a superhero who's kind of the product of drugs and you know this is the <laughs> kind of public right. narrative we're having and so they did a whole summer story in which he gets exposed to some sort of kind of cocaine or crack kind of substitute um and has to get a full blood transfusion so so he loses the super soldier serum his body kind of reverts to its original form and then he defeats some villain. Uh, I can't recall who it was. I think it was Crossbones As or somebody. As a natural human. Yeah. Like he is, so he, he proves he can do it just because he's hardworking and diligent and strategic thinking and so on. Um, but then, of course, it turns out his body cells have been permanently altered. And so he basically reproduces the super soldier serum like his body does it. And so then he reverts to being, of course captain america with his physique and but but now we know we've solved the question about his steroids you know that he's it's not the drugs that make him you know he makes him you know so sorry that was quite a long digression but i guess that you know it goes to show how kind of important to the character is that it's 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 not actually his superpowers that mostly make him significant it's it's who he is and his his discipline his attentiveness his his work effort work ethic and so on well that's a good note because yeah because there's really nothing that the filmmakers the storytellers chris evans there's nothing anyone gives us to hint at what it is about Captain America that allows him to pin this Hydra Trooper down up in the tree and uh, and sling his shield at him. It's just he is being incredibly attentive. So I guess I guess that is what it is. Like, we're not seeing a close-up shot of his nose per Pete's vision of him and giving a big old sniff that <laughs> gives the guy away. Although, I kind of wish that what that was there. That, that would have been fantastic. I smell Hydra. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that's a, that's a Wolverine Hydra. thing. Yeah, He's yeah. not allowed to have Super Sniffer. <laughs> All right. Well, here is where the shield boomerang comes into play. This is the introduction in the franchise to, uh, to Captain America's ability to throw the shield, have it bounce back, and he is able to catch it. 
this is just one person getting taken down, but this is the beginning of the boomeranging of it with vibranium. Um, this is what I, I watched a, a video on Because Science on YouTube th- with them trying to explain this away. And, you know, it's it's always so much fun. But the idea is that what it's doing, what they said is it's capturing, again, vibranium, when you look at like what it does in like Black Panther's suit, it captures the kinetic energy and then it releases it, right? It's not necessarily just absorbent uh, or, or making it disappear, but it actually captures and releases. So what their thoughts were is that like it, it captures the kinetic energy when it hits the person's face and then it instantly releases it and goes shoot you know, you know, uh, pinballing off in an, in the other direction. Oh, no, Andy, it's like red rag to a bull over here. I mean, uh, what's yeah, the difference between immediately releasing the energy and it bouncing? I mean, that's, <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that sounds to me like a distinction without a difference. It sounds like a ball. That, it sounds softer. I, I guess when it's when it's releasing kinetic energy in your face, it sounds like it hurts more as opposed to just a ball bouncing <laughs> off of a wall. <laughs> Uh, all of it, uh, you know. I know. This, yeah, this is—it's dangerous. If that motive. was true, all right. No, sorry, you got me going now. If that was true, when he threw the shield, you would have to wait a second before the energy was released to watch it actually move through the air, right? So it's true, this, true. this idea that there's a split there in time doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I realize oh. I'm being ridiculous. The, the, the whole thing is ridiculous. And here we are. Uh, yes, Pete. I, I appreciate the how this the nature of this conversation but this is not uh my central problem my central problem is with the effect because let's just take as as table stakes that this thing can boomerang around uh he throws it and it knocks the guy out and then it tumbles like end over end it doesn't boomerang and yet he catches it as if it had boomeranged back to him it's like the wrong angle. It's like this whole effect. This this is the kind of stuff that I I really that dr- drives me crazy because this just doesn't it it doesn't communicate what I think they want to communicate with it. And maybe that it's he's just not good at making it boomerang yet, but he's in the middle of a montage. Hasn't he learned? Not the beginning of the montage. Have you ever thrown a boomerang, Pete? It's not easy. It takes it takes <laughs> it takes practice. This is his first try. He'll get there. It just it tumbles. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. So did my first boomerang toss, Pete. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> All right. Well, this is as far as we get to explore in the montage. We're going to be doing it some more next week with our guest then. Uh, but Jason, it has been a thrill having you on to talk about Captain America this week. Uh, of so many different things to t- chat about. Um, any last thoughts before we wrap everything up? Well, now I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute hoot, and um, I've laughed really hard, paid more attention to the movie literally than uh, at least the, <laughs> these five minutes of it um, than I ever kind of thought I could. And uh, but it's been a real joy and a real laugh. And thanks so much for having me. Well, we have uh, absolutely been thrilled to have you here. So we appreciate it. Tell everybody again one last time where they can check out your book and track you down. Absolutely. I, my book is available on Amazon. It's called Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero. And uh, if you're interested in the banalities of my life, you can find me on Twitter at Real J. Dittmer. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us this week. We will be back next week uh, with the, the next set of minutes with the montage and see what happens. 
So, Pete, thank you as always. I can't read to wait to read Jason's next book, Patient Zero and the Nationalist <laughs> Super Zombie. It's going to be dope. Absolutely. And then the sequel, Patient One. <laughs> Patient One. <laughs> oh, man. Until next time, true believers. <laughs> Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.